Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. What are you drinking there in that lovely mug that you're holding? Oh, this, I got this in Charleston when we went for Christmas. And it says Charleston, South Carolina. And it's like a ceramic and it's really pretty. It's got the name of the city and like this viney stuff. And I am drinking Harney and Sons, which you turned me on to. And it is their English breakfast Mm, brew. I love the mug. I don't know if I like like the tea, but I love the mug. (laughs) I like this. Are these the sachets? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like those. Yeah, those are good, right? Mm-hmm. To jump right into our next episode, yeah, we have spoken several times about our shared love of history. That is correct. Everybody probably knows that about us by now. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, because again, we've talked about how many history podcasts you listen to. And, right. and tell me what you know about, here's an unusual topic for you, mm-hmm. our U.S. presidents who have been assassinated. Oh, what do I know about them? Like, how many have we had? Do oh, you know well, you, the most recent one was Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Then I think the one prior to that was it Lincoln. We had Reagan. Reagan, I think, was an attempted assassination. Mm-hmm. Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, was it Garfield? You are right. And hmm, McKinley? Wow. Thank you. Thank you. You have 100% on that social studies quiz. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, American Presidents Totalis Rankium and 1865. That is super impressive. Thank I'm going to tell you, I did not know that. Really? I, of course, I Googled it. And I it, only know it because of American Presidents Totalis Rankium. I love their podcast. Well, I will tell you, when I looked it up and I saw how many assassination attempts there were, yeah. that was super disturbing. Yeah. Well, I think everybody knows about Lincoln and Kennedy, mm-hmm. but probably the other two are much lesser known. You are right, if if I am any <laughs> indication of the rest of the public. I don't remember which one it was, but one of them, they were like trying to, the the guys on Totalis Rankium said they were like trying to fish around in the body for the bullet. They're like, got their bare finger, like, let's mm. see if we can get it out of here. It was awful. They awful. Did, they did that to Lincoln. Oh, I know gosh. they were, they talked about probing. Oh. And, yeah. Speaking of Lincoln, guess what our topic is today? Is it Mr. Lincoln? It is Mr. Lincoln. Oh, yeah. But of course, because it has to relate to the entertainment industry. Yes. And because literally huge books have been written yes. about him, we are going to hone in specifically on the day of Lincoln's assassination and how it occurred at a... Theater. Theater, mm-hmm. exactly. Ford's Theater. Yeah, Ford's Theater. So that's it. Okay. Are you ready to go jump I, right in? I, okay, first of all, have you heard the horrible joke? Oh, no. The horrible joke. I, no. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> the, horrible, the horrible joke about that day is, well, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? <gasps> oh. Oh, that is bad. <laughs> so we'll just start so with bad. the terrible joke. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, you needed to apologize for that. <laughs> All right, but here we go. The day of his assassination was mm-hmm. April 14th, 1865. Mm-hmm. And one of the sources that I pulled quite a bit of information from was a Smithsonian article entitled The Night Abraham Lincoln Was Assassinated. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. It had the most intriguing first line. It said, Good Friday, April 14th, 1865, was surely one of Abraham Lincoln's happiest days. Aww. And that grabbed me. Like, Aww. it was just so sad. It was so tragic to think yeah. about the fact that they're declaring that this was one of the happiest days of this man's life. And then mm-hmm. he ends up shot to death, you know, murdered right. that night. I know he he suffered from melancholy mm-hmm. a lot, depression and melancholy. So that is very poignant that it was his, one of his happiest mm-hmm. days. And because I found that so intriguing, I had to kind of follow it out a little bit. I'm like, well, why? Why were right, they making right, right. this claim about him? And so here are some of the reasons that some of the examples that they gave in this article that gave evidence to the fact that he was so happy this day. Well, one of the reasons was his son, Robert, enjoyed breakfast with him that morning. Robert had just returned from the front. He had been serving on General Grant's staff. And of course, that means he was in situations that were very unsafe. Right. And so Mary Lincoln's seamstress, Elizabeth Keckley, is who is given credit for having kind of overheard this exchange between mm-hmm. Lincoln and his son, Robert, at breakfast time. And so she she's the one who gave us this quote. Supposedly, Lincoln turned to Robert and said, Well, my son, you have returned safely from the front. The war is now closed, and we soon will live in peace with the brave men that have been fighting against us. And then he told Robert, you know, he was encouraging him to put aside his uniform. He wanted him to finish his education, Mm -hmm. the inferences that he was probably pushing him towards his law career. And again, the seamstress Elizabeth Keckley herself commented that, quote, his face was more cheerful than she had seen it for a long while. Wow. Yeah. But there's more. Okay. Okay. He had many, many meetings, as you can imagine a president would have, and he Mm -hmm. happened to have a cabinet meeting that morning that involved many high officials. A few of them gave quotes afterwards reflecting back on this day, and they talked also about how happy he seemed. This kind of seems like a backward compliment, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little bit of a slam, but Attorney General James Speed said that he would hold fast to the memory of Lincoln's personal appearance that day because he commented that Lincoln was cleanly shaved, had a cleanly shaved face, well-brushed clothing, and neatly combed hair and whiskers. And was going on about how that was like Odd. so right, so different from his normal, uh, like really slovenly, like rumpled appearance. Well, maybe he was just stressed with everything that was going right? on, sir. Yeah, exactly. And then another person who chimed in, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, later wrote when he was recollecting that day that he that Lincoln seemed, quote, more cheerful and happy than at any previous cabinet meeting that he'd had, and he thought it was because he was thrilled by the quote, near prospect of firm and durable peace at home and abroad. And this was like a big theme of course a reason for this happiness like the war is ending right, right they've right, won right, right. and they kept talking about the fact that lincoln was so forgiving like mm-hmm. his his spirit towards the confederacy right was just so magnanimous yes <laughs> he gave the quote lincoln spoke very kindly of general lee and others of the confederacy exhibiting in marked degree the kindness and humanity of his disposition and the tender and forgiving spirit that so eminently distinguished him. Gosh, what a good guy. I know. And what a great quote to to have said about you, Mm -hmm. right? I Mm -hmm. mean, and then the final example that I'll share with you is a little more personal. It's from his wife, Mary Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln. And she was telling a painter named Francis Carpenter about how cheerful Lincoln had seemed that day. Here's, this is kind of a long quote, but I, I loved hearing it from the mouth of his wife, right? Mm -hmm. She said, his manner was even playful. At three o'clock in the afternoon, he drove out with me in the open carriage. In starting, I asked him if anyone should accompany us. He immediately replied, 
No, I prefer to ride by ourselves today. During the drive, he was so gay that I said to him laughingly, Dear husband, you almost startle me by your great cheerfulness. He replied, And well I may feel so, Mary. I consider this day the war has come to a close. And then he added, We must both be more cheerful in the future. Between the war and the loss of our darling Willie, we have both been very miserable. Mm. Yeah. So Willie was, of course, their son. Mm -hmm. And he died in February of 1862 of a disease that they called a typhoid-like disease. I don't think they had the medical know-how to give an official diagnosis, but we pretty much assume it was typhoid. He wasn't quite 12, so he was he was 11. Mm. And this was obviously just very devastating to both of them. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln, of course, already struggled with mental illness. And this sent her into a deep depression, which added to the burden that Lincoln was carrying because he was depressed himself. He was struggling with grief himself. But then he had the terrible pressures of the war. And so this affected their relationship, obviously. It talked about the fact that it was just this vicious cycle. They said that his intense focus on his presidential responsibilities left her feeling abandoned. Neglected. Which caused her to become more resentful and there you go. Now it's, yeah, you know, it's a spiral. Adding, yeah, right. So this particular day, this particular time period was just so hopeful. The war mm-hmm. was coming to an end, their grief. They'd had a few years just to try to deal with it. Yeah. And so it said that they had started talking about a happier future. They they had plans. They were going to travel. They had talked about going to Europe and the Holy Land, to the mm-hmm. Rockies, California, then back to Illinois, which is where they started out together. Right. So it was just this really hopeful time. Do I hear your little kitty cat in the background? You do. <laughs> Guys, we're just going to press on. My little kitty cat wants to be in here with us, and he will. He'll be okay. Oh, That's Scotty in the background, guys. All right, Scotty. We'll Sorry. Right here, baby. He'll go take a nap in just a second. <laughs> so there were so many other examples. I don't want to belabor this, but, but for example, just one more. A journalist that President Lincoln spoke to after dinner was quoted as saying, Lincoln had never seemed more hopeful and buoyant concerning the condition of the country. He was full of fun and anecdotes feeling especially jubilant at the prospect before us. So it was just this incredibly happy, hopeful day for him and his wife that, of course, we know ends so tragically. Yeah. So before I continue just like launching through the timeline and what happened on this particular day, do you want to, I know you probably have a lot of background knowledge. Is there anything you want to share that you remember about the events of of that day yeah that night of the assassination I think what I remember is that they were supposed to go with some friends and I believe the friends could not go at the last minute and maybe that he I don't know if he was keen on going but she really wanted to go something like that one thing that strikes me as you're talking about how happy he was in that day which I had not heard before is that it was a really good day for him is something you and I have talked about before just off mic is if you knew it was going to be your last day, mm-hmm. what a great thing for it to be a happy day mm-hmm. and to, to be with people that you love and to be around the things that mm-hmm. you love and to have this good news. That's what that's kind of what's hitting me right now as you're saying this is he was on a high. He wasn't in a depressive low. Right. It wasn't at the peak of the war. It just it just seems like it was a hopeful note for him to bow out on. I love that positive mm-hmm. comment there. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, again, you have such great background knowledge about so many things you've named a few things that I was getting ready to talk about yeah they had to have an early dinner because they had plans to go see the famous actress Laura Keene in this play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater that evening it had been publicized the playbills had been printed saying that on April 14th President Lincoln was going to be in attendance at this at this production so the tickets such a security risk I know right such a security risk but I guess we still do that now don't they say ahead of time somebody's gonna be somewhere 
sometimes, mm. but then, yeah, but then there's so many preparations in True. place. To, yeah, yeah. Right. But the tickets had sold out because everybody was excited. They wanted to be there. They wanted to see the president. And right. and actually, you're right as well. Originally, General Grant and his wife were supposed General to go Grant. too. Okay. Okay. And that had been publicized. They okay. had put it in a newspaper that General Grant would be there with the president. Gotcha. So, I mean, now, you know, I want to see the whole presidential party, right? right. So Abraham Lincoln did not want to go. And he, he hoped to bow out, but they had a quote from him that said, it has been advertised that we will be there and I cannot disappoint the people. So he felt like he had to go. But again, this feels like if you were a person who was like a little superstitious and you believed in signs, I feel like you would start to get a little nervous about the fact that you could, like he could not get anybody to go with him. You know, Mm. as we said, first of all, the Grants beg off, right? They're supposed to go. But Julia Grant wants to go see her children in New Jersey. So General Grant says, say, sorry, we can't make it. Gotcha. So now Lincoln starts trying to like recruit other people. He goes to House Speaker Schuyler Colfax. He declines. He's got too many commitments. And why did he want people to, just to have some friends go with them? Just they, to have uh, companions? Yes. Okay, yeah, just gotcha. to have a little presidential party, I guess, rather than just the two of them. Then he approached Edwin Stanton, who mm-hmm. was, again, the war secretary. And you nailed it. This is the fella who had that the same concern, right, about yeah. security. Yeah. He had been telling Lincoln for months. Don't he did do not, this. He, yeah. He was like, don't go out in public places. You know, don't be telling people where you're going to be. Uh-huh. He was super concerned about it. I'm going to go do something about yeah. Scotty, you guys. We're going to take a break. Hey, friends, this is Candy again. A quick reminder about our fifth Tuesday listener request. If you have an episode idea that might make a great fit for our March series on murder, mystery, and madness, go to scandalwaterpodcast.com and submit your idea on our homepage. To give us plenty of time to research, record, and edit, we need your ideas by February 1st. We can't wait to hear what you brew up. Okay, guys, we took a really uh, impromptu break to rescue my cat. So he's in my lap now. So you may hear some purring. Purring is better than meowing, right? Yes. It, it shows a lot more happiness. Yes. <laughs> we want it to be happy. That's right. Okay, so jumping back in, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Now, you had kind of predicted this a little bit ago. Yes, yes. He's the guy who had the same concerns you did. He's like, President Lincoln, why are you out in public all the time? This is not safe. Why are right. you telling people where you're going to be? So he had been kind of pushing on Abraham Lincoln pretty openly to try to change his behaviors, even though it doesn't say whether he wanted to go to the play or not. But it says in the article that he declined on principle, like he did not want to go because he did not want to seem as though he was affirming this behavior or condoning it. Right. He not only would not go or and I'm sure, you know, his wife was invited too, but he not only declined for them, but he wouldn't let one of his workers who was invited in his place attend. He was like, "Mm, no, you're not going either. Even (laughs) though this fella Thomas Eckert this is sad Lincoln had made the joke that it would have been great if Thomas Eckert had been able to go with him because he was this guy known for being really big and brawny and um, supposedly could break a poker over his arm and so Lincoln had joked that if he went he could have been his bodyguard I know the Lincolns finally found their partners in Clara Harris and Major Henry Rathbone. She was, Clara was like a socialite. She was the daughter of Mary's friend, Senator Ira Harris, and Major Henry Rathbone was her fiance. So the 
four of them left for the theater a little after 8 p.m. riding together in a carriage. Okay. Okay. Now, as they are heading to the carriage, we have John Wilkes Booth and three conspirators meeting a block away at the Herndon house, which was a boarding house where one of those guys, one of the conspirators was staying. Booth had been for a while working on this plan, which originally called for Lincoln to be abducted. They thought that this, yeah. I think I remember this, yes. Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to be an abduction and some of his conspirators had signed on with that in mind. In fact, uh, the carriage, I think he was a carriage maker named Asteralt, George Asteralt. Like that was one of the defense arguments that he gave later when he was taken to trial was like, there was never supposed to be a murder here. Mm. Like he signed on. That's not a great defense though. Right. We just meant to kidnap him. We didn't want to kill him. Well, but I mean... I mean, Better it's, than it's killing. De- yeah, it's a defense. Yeah. Not a great defense. Right. But originally it was supposed to be an abduction because the whole point, of course, was to try to overthrow this government and get the conspiracy or the, right. the Confederacy, excuse me, to win. But he had adjusted that plan just a few days prior because of the turn that the war had taken. And so he had decided that they needed to do some assassinations. And this was something that was fascinating to me. I did not know this until I was an adult, probably like, I don't know, five years ago when I started reading some books. I've read like Manhunt and a Mm -hmm. couple of books about this. I never, I don't think, was taught in school that this was not supposed to be a simple assassination of the president, but it was supposed to be everybody three people at once. Yes. The goal was to take out President Lincoln, Secretary of State William Henry Seward, and Vice President Andrew Johnson at the same time, which would have taken out the three senior members of the executive branch, which, of course, then they felt would cause the government to collapse, right? The Confederacy would have had the upper hand here. And they decided, Booth decided, that the triple assassinations would be set for 10, 15 p.m. that night. Now, the reason why he suddenly decided it was going to be that night was because he had figured out Lincoln was going to be at the theater. He'd not seen the playbill, though. Apparently, back in those days, actors were kind of traveling people, and and they needed, like, a a stable spot where their mail could be sent. Uh And so... Booth's mail was sent to Ford's Theater, where he and his family were actors. And he had gone that morning to pick up his mail, learned the president would be there. And that's when he he pulled the trigger. He said, this is it. It's going to happen tonight. We're going to go for this. So again, these conspirators are meeting. They're figuring out their um, last minute plans because they're going to be go in a couple hours. Now, here's how it was supposed to play out just really quickly. We both know this could be like a book. Um, So I'm, I'm being a little superficial with the details, sure. but one conspirator named Lewis Powell, who sometimes also went by the last name of Payne, he was in his early 20s, around 21. He was supposed to go to Seward's house with David Harrell, who was around 23. William Henry Seward was in his home at Lafayette Square, bedridden, because he had had a carriage accident, a very serious carriage accident, nine days before, and he was in really bad shape still. Mm. They were supposed to kill him. Booth sent the carriage maker, George Astorot, who was around 30, to shoot the vice president, who was staying in the Kirkwood Hotel. And then Booth, who was 26 years old at this time, he had this whole acting background. His father was an actor. His brother was supposed to be one of the best actors of the day. Yeah, I was um, heard it compared to like if this would be as if Tom Cruise mm-hmm. had tried something like this. That's how famous their family was. I had never really heard that much about Edwin, which 
the article that I was reading said is because of what Booth did. Like, right. had he not done what he done, we probably would be reading about Edwin because he was a very acclaimed actor. Hmm. Yeah, did a lot of Shakespeare. Dad was good, too. In fact, there was another brother who acted as well. This was an acting family. Sounds like it, a dynasty. Mm-hmm. John Wilkes Booth had performed in Ford's Theater himself several times. People knew him. Like I said, his mail went there. He knew he had access. He knew no one would question right. him being in the theater. And therefore, he knew that he was the one who was going to kill the president. What I'm going to do now is rather than just kind of continue to just summarize the events, I've pulled an account from the doctor who treated President Lincoln first. He was there at the theater. His name was Dr. Charles Augustus Leal. He was only 23 years old. He had just graduated from medical school, his medical college, six weeks prior to this. Wow. He did come from a a medical family, though. His dad was like some big dude in charge of a hospital or something. So he, he had a medical background, but he was very young and inexperienced professionally, I guess Mm -hmm, you would say. mm -hmm. And he had a report that he had to complete after this. It was very detailed. It was pages long. I pulled just a small piece of it that I'm going to ask you to read, Ashley, if you could just read for us the words of this doctor. Sure. And Scotty's going to be our background. I arrived at Ford's Theater about 8 and a fourth p.m. So I guess he means 8.15. Mm-hmm. I arrived at Ford's Theater about 8 and a fourth p.m. April 14th, 65, and procured a seat in the dress circle about 40 feet from the president's box. The play was in progressing, and in a few minutes I saw the president, Mrs. Lincoln, Major Rathbone, and Miss Harris enter. While proceeding to the box, they were seen by the audience who cheered, which was reciprocated by the president and Mrs. Lincoln by a smile and a bow. The party was preceded by an attendant, who after opening the door of the box and closing it after they had all entered, took a seat nearby for himself. The theater was well filled and the play of Our American Cousin progressed very pleasantly until about half past ten, when the report of a pistol was distinctly heard and about a minute after a man of low stature with black hair and eyes was seen leaping to the stage beneath, holding in his hand a drawn dagger. While descending, his heel got entangled in the American flag, which was hung in front of the box, causing him to stumble when he struck the stage. But with a single bound, he regained the use of his limbs and ran to the opposite side of the stage, flourishing in his hand a drawn dagger and disappearing behind the scene. I then heard cries that the president has been murdered, which would follow by those of kill the murderer, shoot him, etc., which came from different parts of the audience. I immediately ran to the president's box, and as soon as the door was opened and was admitted and introduced to Mrs. Lincoln, when she exclaimed several times, Oh, doctor, do what you can for him. Do what you can. I told her we would do all we possibly could. Mm, Thank you. To fill in a few gaps, because of course that was the doctor's perspective and he was giving us the pieces that he saw and what he heard. Here's what went on behind the scenes. Booth had attended a dress rehearsal the day before to better rehearse how he was going to set this whole thing up. He had already taken his place in the theater when the Lincolns arrived. So the presidential party settled into their box, which was in the dress circle area, and there wasn't anybody on either side of them. They were kind of alone in their little area. And it said, as both observers and Mary herself recalled... So sweet. Mary and Abe were very affectionate. Mm. I think uncharacteristically so. They kept snuggling up to each other. It was reported that President Lincoln's last words were, she won't think anything about it because Mary, she had had her hand on his leg. They'd been holding hands. And at some point she had turned to him and said, what will Miss Harris think of my hanging on to you so? Mm. And again, he had responded, she won't think anything about Mm. it. 
Those were his last words. He said five minutes later, John Wilkes Booth entered the presidential box. So during the performance, a White House footman had delivered a message to the president. At about 12 minutes after 10, this impeccably dressed was how they described him. John Wilkes Booth presented his calling card to the footman and gained admittance to the box. So he had turned over his calling card. They let him in. I wonder why? Well, I mean, they knew him. He was oh, Tom Cruise. He was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Once inside, he raised his pistol, pointed it at the back of the president's head and fired. It said as Lincoln slumped forward, Major Henry Rathbone attempted to come after him. He attempted to grab the intruder. It said that this is when Booth dropped his single shot Derringer to the floor and he pulled out this huge dagger that he had and he was gripping it in his right hand. So now Booth and Major Rathbone are in this struggle and he attempted to stab the Major in his chest. But when Rathbone lifted his arm to defend himself, he got this huge cut from Booth's dagger that was in his left upper arm that caused him to bleed profusely. It said that it cut an artery actually. So I I don't think I remember hearing about this part. Yeah, it was pretty serious. All of this caused Booth to try to escape, right? He's trying to flee. So he jumps to the stage, which is when, as the the doctor described, his foot got caught on the flag. It was supposedly about 15 feet from where he was in this dress circle um, presidential box down to the stage. But don't you think it's ironic that it's the American flag that tangled him up? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. I like that. And it said he broke his left leg then, which, side note, some people speculate now that he didn't actually break his leg mm-hmm. when he jumped, but that it could have happened when he was fleeing. We'll get to that in just a minute. He uh-huh. When he was fleeing with his horse. But he himself wrote in his diary later that he that's broke his leg jumping, right, jumping to the stage. He says that's when it happened. Numerous witnesses said that Booth was brandishing the dagger while he was shouting, I'm not sure I'll say this right, sick semper tyrannus. Death to tyrants. Death to tyrants. Yeah, absolutely. Which was also the Virginia State motto. And And it said that a part of this was not just that, you know, the political statement of it, but also he related so much. uh, They were Shakespearean actors. So he related the situation with like, you know, Brutus and Julius Caesar. And, you know, Mm. so part of the using the Latin might have been kind of because of that. Some witnesses said that he also declared the South as avenged, but that did not come from all the witnesses. And then it said Booth tossed the dagger aside in the alley before mounting his horse. And it was later discovered by a government official. On the horse is when some people tried to say that he this is where he broke his leg because it said as he was racing away at this high rate of speed, the horse tripped on something and fell on his left side. And the weight of the horse's left side then landed on Booth's left leg, which can cause an injury that would be consistent with what he had. But okay. again, he, he said, says, he says, it. It and was if you in the fell jump. 15 feet, that would be when it would break. If mm-hmm. something was going to break, it would be when you jump 15 feet. Right. And it said he was staggering off the stage. Yeah. You know, there was clearly some kind of an injury that occurred. Well, we have a lot more to come, but I'm wondering if this would be a good place to pause and take a break. Sure, do let's so. do it. Okay. Hi, this is Eric Archilla, co-creator of 1865, an audio drama about the aftermath of the Lincoln assassination and the battle with Andrew Johnson for the soul of the country. I love spilled tea, and no one spills tea better than Candy and Ashley. When I heard they were going to do an episode about John Wilkes Booth, I got really excited because he's got a lot of historical tea to spill. Thank you for listening to Scandal Water, and check out 1865, available anywhere podcasts are found. All right, we are back and ready to hear more about um, the night we lost President Lincoln. To lead us to this next part of the story, I'm going to again ask you to read from an eyewitness account, Ashley. This comes from Julia Adelaide Shepard, who was there at Fort Theater that night. And she wrote to her father later, um, just a few days later, a letter recounting what happened. So here's a little piece of it. Okay. A man leaps from the president's box some 10 feet onto the stage. 
The truth flashes upon me. Brandishing a dagger, he shrieks out, The South is avenged! and rushes through the scenery. No one stirs. Did you hear what he said, Julia? I believe he has killed the president. Miss Harris is wringing her hands and calling for water. Another instant and the stage is crowded. Officers, policemen, actors, and citizens. Is there a surgeon in the house, they say. Several rush forward and with superhuman efforts climb up to the box. Minutes are hours, but see, they are bringing him out. A score of strong arms bear Lincoln's loved form along. A glimpse of ghastly face is all as they pass along. Major Rathbone, who was part of their party, springs forward to support Mrs. Lincoln, but cannot. What is it? Yes, he too has been stabbed. Somebody says, clear the house. So everyone else repeats, yes, clear the house. So slowly one party after another steals out. There is no need to hurry. On the stairs, we stop aghast and with shuddering lips. Yes, see, it is our president's blood. All down the stairs and out upon the pavement. It seems sacrilege to step near. We are in the street now. They have taken the president to the house opposite. He is alive, but mortally wounded. Mm. By the way, shout out to the Ford's Theater website mm-hmm. because so many wonderful first-person accounts That's cool. and the history and the pictures. I mean, I had several great sources, but Ford's Theater's website is where that came from, and they were wonderful. Are they still in operation? They are. Oh, and wow. And we're going to talk a little bit about that Oh, later. I want to go see that place. Mm. I've been there. And no, it's a, really? I have on an eighth-grade field trip. Your eighth grade was amazing. Um, t- well, no, no, no. As, as an educator <laughs> attending oh. <laughs> the eighth grade. This whole thing, this whole time I thought you went to Williamsburg as an eighth grader (laughs) and you went here as an eighth grader. I'm like, what school does she go to? This place is amazing. (laughs) We didn't go anywhere like that when I was growing up. Okay. No, this was as an adult. Okay. Okay. All right. So again, to fill in some of those gaps, when the doctors saw President Lincoln, it was pretty clear this was super serious and he was not likely to survive. This theater did not seem like a proper place for a president to die. And the White House was, it was only six blocks away, but still, I think they knew that that, that he wasn't going to make it. Right. And it was a bumpy carriage ride, the unpaved streets. They were afraid that would kill him. Yeah. So they needed to get him out of the theater and they didn't have a lot of options. So after those soldiers carried Lincoln down the stairs the way that Miss Julia Adelaide Shepard described, they were out on 10th Street. And as they came out, standing on this boarding house across the road, Mr. Peterson's boarding house, was this man named Henry Safford. And he'd heard the commotion. He'd kind of figured out what was going on. He knew that one of the boarders, a man named Willie Clark, was not there for the night Mm -hmm. and that his room was open. So he, he yells to the soldiers, bring him in here. So they carry the president over to this Peterson house is how they still refer to it. And this is less than 20 minutes from the time he's been shot. Okay. Yeah, it is happening fast. They take him into the room that's been offered to them. They place him on the bed. President Lincoln is so tall and the bed is short. They made beds shorter than they had to put him diagonally. And they had to take away kind of like something that was at the foot of the bed just to make more room for him and get him comfortable. It said the windows were opened and at Dr. Leal's request, he's the fellow you read from earlier. That's um, the young one, right? The, the one that just one, become 20, a doctor? Yeah. He made this captain who was present have everybody leave the room except for the medical people and and the very very close friends first lady mary lincoln waited in the front parlor like just wanting to hear updates on her husband but she wasn't i don't think in the room a lot i think she was primarily in the other part of the house waiting to find out what was happening i wonder why they didn't want her in the room it would be too traumatic I think they were just busily trying, trying to, to, save to him. treat him. Yeah, it said that she would occasionally venture in to visit him, but okay. but she was out a lot. 
In the back parlor, it said Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was interrogating witnesses. He was already starting to investigate. Mm. And it said outside thousands of people were crowded onto 10th Street, keeping vigil through the night. Wow. Yeah. The doctor's report detailed every check they made on the president. He talked about exactly what you said earlier, those probes into the wound. But there was really nothing they can do. So from his report, just pulling one last excerpt, it said at 7.20 a.m., he breathed his last and the spirit fled to God who gave it. Mm. During the night, the room was visited by many of his friends. Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Senator Dixon came into the room three or four times during the night. The president's son, Captain R. Lincoln, remained with his father during the greater part of the night. Immediately after death had taken place, we all bowed, and the Reverend Dr. Gurley... Is this suck- a quote? This is all a quote, yeah. No, does he say, is this where he says he belongs to the ages? Now he belongs to the ages, or who says that? Oh, that's not in this. Oh, okay. So we'll it, wa- it, wasn't, it wasn't Charles Leal. Okay. Immediately after death had taken, we all bowed, and Reverend Dr. Gurley supplicated to God in behalf of the bereaved family and our afflicted country. Oh, so maybe he said it, and this fellow just didn't quote that in the report. Maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as we just heard, President Lincoln died at 7.22 a.m. on April 15, 1865. Mary Lincoln was not in the room at the time. Soldiers quickly removed his body to the White House for an autopsy and to prepare it for a funeral. At 11 a.m., Vice President Andrew Johnson took the oath of office as the 17th president. Hmm. So remember, the focus of this episode was really honing in just on his assassination Mm -hmm. and death um, at the theater. But this is so fascinating to me that I couldn't help but want to look at the what happened to's, you know, like all of that, like after stuff. Yeah. So I have some of that. Okay. If you're interested. Yes. Okay. What about those other assassination attempts? Okay. Remember David Harold and Lewis Powell slash Payne, because he used both last names, they were heading off to the Seward home. One of them chickened out. You are right. Yes. I okay. don't remember. One of, them, one of them did hurt the guy and the other one chickened out. Mm-hmm. Good. These are the people who were serious. Okay. <laughs> so when they, uh, they got there on horseback and David Harold was responsible for holding the horse for the other guy, Lewis Powell, while Powell went in to commit the attack. All right, remember we said Seward, Secretary of State, he had been hurt in that carriage accident. Mm -hmm. He is laid up. Mm -hmm. So Powell gets into the building by saying he was there to deliver medicine to the injured man. And he says he has to give it to this Secretary of State directly. Like he, And so he gets stopped on the stairs by Seward's son, Frederick, who says, no, give me the medicine. I'll give it to him. Right. So Powell attempts to fire at Frederick. And when that doesn't work, I think it misfired. He beats him over the head with the barrel of his gun so hard that it actually breaks his skull oh, and his brains. Kind of, oh, yeah, it's did he bad. Die? He lived. Oh, my goodness. All right. Then he bursts through the door. He throws the daughter out of the way, and it actually said there were like four or five different people he encountered along the way that he attacked, but he did jump on the bed and actually stab William Seward in the face and neck oh. five times. Oh. Now, he ends up living. He what? ends up, he because they had put something, this like kind of metal brace around his oh. neck because of his carriage accident, oh. and even though his cuts in his face and neck are severe, I mean, I, don't, I won't go into a graphic description, but they gave some details that were kind of gross. It was that metal contraption around his neck that, that saved actually saved him. There was a private who was injured because they fought with him. Another son, Augustus Henry Seward, he was injured in the struggle. This dude was serious. He was he stabbed the messenger. Good um, grief. Yeah. Now, when he finally got outside, 
Harold, David Harold, who was with him, had been panicked by all the screams, and he had left. Oh. He had run away with both horses. <laughs> both horses. Woo. Right. Powell just kind of runs off into the night. He escapes into the night. And as we said, it ends up that everybody who was attacked in that house did live. Wow. All right. He was very determined, but very bad at his job. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. The fellow you were thinking of who totally chickened out was Astaroth. He was the one, remember, who had said... Supposed to kill Johnson. Mm-hmm. And he Got had never really signed up to murder somebody, remember? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He decided just not to go through with it. He did go to a bar. He decided he wasn't going to kill him. And he just didn't go and didn't do it. Good boy. Yeah. And then Booth, again, no time to talk about this, but it, it is a fascinating book if you ever want to read Manhunt. But 12 days, they chased him down. And when they finally caught him, he was with David Harold. They were in a barn. He was heavily armed. He was fighting. The detectives who had him surrounded were trying to get him, them to come out. And they threatened to set the barn on fire. David Harold did surrender. Booth was not going to do it. Mm-hmm. He was fighting to the end. And so as the fire escalated and he started to step out, armed to the teeth, ready to fight, somebody shot him. He died a few hours later. Mm-hmm. So that's how he met his end. All the other conspirators were hanged. True. Yeah. Even the guy that didn't go through with it? Yes. Wow. Yes. This was fascinating to me too, because I had never heard this before. So it's kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but whatever happened to Clara Harris and Henry Rathbone? Yeah. All right, listen to this. Did they get married? They did get married. So I'm going to share this with you. It comes straight from teachinghistory.org. Ask a historian. And it says that after the terrible night at Ford's Theater, Clara Harris and Henry Rathbone married and had three children. However, Henry was never able to get over what happened at Ford's Theater. He felt guilty for surviving the assassination and believed, as many had gossiped, that he should have done more to prevent the tragedy from happening. Mm. He felt he could never escape attention for being there that night and began to suffer from hallucinations and eventually declined into mental illness. On Christmas Eve in 1883, while living in Germany, he attacked his own family and himself. Almost imitating the assassination of years before, he shot Clara and stabbed himself several times with a knife. Clara died from the attack and Henry was declared insane. He was committed to an asylum for the criminally insane in Germany and his children were sent to live with their uncle in the United States. Henry died in 1911 and was buried with Clara in a cemetery in Germany. That's horrible. I know. I'd never heard that. I hadn't either. And apparently, if we ever want to like dig a little bit more, apparently there are some like creepy stories based around the fact that she had kept the um, dress she was wearing that had blood all over it. And she'd shown people for a while. It was kind of like this, look at this kind of thing. Yeah, spectacle. And then after a while, somehow or other, somebody like, they decided they wanted to kind of seal it up in a closet because they didn't want Want it around anymore. And actually, after this tragedy with, you know, his dad and his mom, one of the sons ended up burning that dress, thinking that it was part of this curse on Mm. them. That's terrible. Yeah, and that one more tid- tidbit is that Clara and Henry were actually stepbrother and stepsister. What? One of them's dad had married the other one's mom, and that's kind of how they met each other. A little odd. That is a little yeah. odd. Last little piece of trivia, you know, whatever happened to, I wanted just to end with Ford's Theater, since, okay. you know, that was our entertainment connection here, right? Ford's Theater was originally a Baptist church built in 1833. In 1861, John T. Ford bought it and renovated it. That's when he turned it into the theater. Mm-hmm. 
But after a fire in 1862, he actually built a new building, which is what still stands today. After Lincoln's assassination, the building was unused for a long time while they debated what should they do with it. Right. Some wanted to burn it down. Yeah. Some said it should be reopened, turned into an educational institute that, like, you know, talked about Lincoln. What happened kind here? Of, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1866, though, the government bought it, and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton ordered it be converted into a three-foot office building that was listed as a federal records building on the Ford site, okay? Now, in the meantime, that Peterson house had turned from a home into a law and a newspaper office, and then, because the public was so interested in this place where Lincoln actually died, in 1893, it became Collector Osborne Oldroyd's Lincoln Museum. In 1932, the government moved the Lincoln Museum into the Ford Theater building. They turned the Peterson house into a historical house museum. Okay. And that's when the National Park Service took over Ford's Theater in 1933. And then they still didn't quite know what to do with the building. In 1968, they did reopen it for its first public performance since Lincoln was assassinated. And since that time, it has been both a working theater and also a historic site. It does both. Really? Okay. You can go there and see plays done today. But my field trip, this field trip I was on, we went in for an educational tour. Okay. And and heard like somebody speak about it. So I'm assuming you cannot see where he sat that's probably part of the tour now that you say that i think we got to walk by and kind of look in yes but it was off limits yes, to I touch would, anything I, yes, yes i would think that that's yeah that they would have that the mm-hmm. tape up where you could look in there but no one can go sit in there anymore mm-hmm. yeah armchair psychologist it's time now for our armchair psychologist segment okay i can't imagine okay. what this is gonna be well i struggled a little bit i'm like what should i throw at her mm-hmm. and so here's what i came up with okay. which is a little odd you're probably not going to predict this one remember i talked about if you were somebody who was a little superstitious you might you know you might have some qualms about the fact that like nobody wants to go to the theater with me like this seems a little weird there were a few other things that were you a superstitious person you might you might have come away feeling a little hinky you might have been a little worried one was the fact that at that same cabinet meeting we we mentioned earlier where everybody talked about how happy he was lincoln had talked about a dream he had i remember this dream Mm. yes but do you remember no keep telling i don't know it well enough to retell it but i remember the dream okay i'm gonna use my notes here to make sure i get this right they were waiting apparently on some news from the war and grant had said well he's worried because he hadn't heard something yet that he he wanted to hear something that would confirm you know that things were going okay and supposedly lincoln told grant not to worry that he knew those great tidings were going to come soon and here's the quote for he had last night the usual dream which he had preceding nearly every great and important event of the war. And supposedly another fellow there at this meeting asked him to describe the dream and Lincoln had said it involved the Navy Secretary's quote, element, the water, that he seemed to be in some singular, indescribable vessel, and that he was moving with great rapidity towards an indefinite shore, and that he had this dream preceding Sumter, Bull Run, Antietam, Gettysburg, Stone River, Vicksburg, Wilmington, etc. And then Grant remarked that not all of those great events had been victories. Right. Now, this one is factual. This has been recorded by several people that that he did share this dream and that this encounter happened. Something that doesn't have the same credibility is an account given by Lincoln's former law partner, Ward Hill Lamon, who accompanied him as a bodyguard on a train ride through Baltimore at the beginning of his presidency. And he remained a friend and occasionally served as a bodyguard up until Lincoln died. And it said that he wrote that he was among two or three people present when the president related a disturbing 
disturbing dream he had only a few days before his assassination. And this fellow, um, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, Lamont, actually put it in a book. He published this book after Lincoln's death. It was all these anecdotal reminiscences that he had put together trying to capture all these memories. It came out two years actually after Lincoln's death. And here's what he said. Lincoln, this is a dream, right? Lincoln began by commenting on the abundance of dreams in the Bible and asserting, if we believe the Bible, we must accept the fact that in the old days, God and his angels came to men in their sleep and made themselves known in dreams. And so in answer to this question put to him by his wife, Lincoln admitted he didn't believe in dreams, but then he went on still to describe a dream that has haunted him. And here's what Lincoln supposedly shared when asked about his dream. He said about 10 days ago, he had gone to bed late after he had stayed up, quote, waiting for important dispatches from the front. And then he shared that as he began to dream, he experienced a, quote, death-like stillness about me. And then he describes how he had heard sounds that sounded like sobs, and he had walked downstairs to try to figure out where all these sobs were coming from. But he encountered no living person until he entered the East Room, where he found a sickening surprise, which was a covered corpse resting on a kind of a bench thing surrounded by soldiers with mourners gazing at the body and weeping. Now here's a quote, Mm -hmm. who is dead in the White House? And he had asked that of one of the soldiers. And then it went on to say that the answer was the president. He was killed by an assassin. Mm. And then Lincoln had shared that he awoke soon after in response to a loud burst of grief from the crowd and that he didn't sleep again that night due to the dream and that he shared with these people he was telling it that he had been strangely annoyed by it since. And then Lamont goes on to talk about how he had a later encounter where Lincoln insisted that no, it was not him. He was not the corpse. But they speculate, you know, they, they were think he was saying maybe it's George Washington or, you know, something like that. But oh, because the person said the president mm-hmm, exactly okay. didn't okay. like actually name it. But in this person's view, they think that Lincoln was, you know, possibly dreaming of his own death. And so it was kind of a creepy account. If you read the whole thing, I, it definitely kind of gave me chills a little bit. But then it goes on to say at the bottom, historians really don't believe this. They think mm. that this fellow Lamont, he had inconsistencies, his story changed sometimes, and, and they don't really believe okay. this account. They think he was just trying to kind of make some money off okay. of telling anecdotes. All that to say. My question for you, one of these dreams we know he had, one dream has been talked about, it's kind of legendary, whatever. Just an opinion question. Do you believe dreams can be a premonition or or a warning about things to come? Yeah, I think that they can. I mean, if if we want to go biblical text, it talks about that in the last days, young men will see visions and, or I don't remember the exact thing, but they say they will dream dreams, which is kind of, they will see what's going to happen. So I, I think that it is possible. He seems like the kind of person that was tuned in to the supernatural. I don't know. I don't know where he leaned as far as sometimes they can talk about God, but you don't, you know, all presidents tend to talk about God. That doesn't mean necessarily that they are ascribing to a Christian philosophy. They can be universalist or, but I think it's true. I think Mm -hmm. you can. I think you can Mm -hmm. see if you're open to it. I think you can have dreams that will tell you some things. I've had dreams sometimes that have occurred after the passing of a loved one where I've dreamt that they have talked to me in the Mm -hmm. dream. Not necessarily like they're not there, obviously. They're not physically there, but it's almost like they were saying goodbye Mm -hmm. or that, but it was such a real 
feeling. Mm -hmm. So I, was it real? I don't know. It really happened to me, but it made me feel better. Yeah. So I don't know. But yeah, I would, I would say that the messages come from anywhere. Why not dreams? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So whether or not it was in your dream, like a physical manifestation of that Mm -hmm. person talking to you, it was still like somehow a message was communicated Mm -hmm. or you felt like there was, they conveyed something to you through your dream. Yes. Yeah. You know, I don't even know where I stand on this one. I don't think I've ever experienced anything. It's happening more as I get older, which is interesting to me that it, it happened after my uncle passed away and I had one after my grandfather passed Mm. away. Where it's very specific. And I've had, sometimes I've had some where I will dream something or, and then it will be something that will kind of come to pass, not in a general sense, like no, nothing like current events, anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it'll be like, oh, that's kind of like what I dreamed about. Just some random thing. A little deja vu-ish. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. a little deja vu-ish, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny because, like I said, speaking from personal experience, you know, it's never happened to me. Mm -hmm. I I can't think of anybody, you know, other than like you've just shared an experience, but I, I would have trouble thinking of other friends who've shared with me similar things you know it's, so it's not something that's like high in my consciousness but it certainly is fascinating it like is. when and you I read wonder, about it yeah i wonder if people are just kind of embarrassed because you don't want to say that that happens to you it, it opens you up to all kinds of criticism mm-hmm. or people not believing you or whatever but nobody can take it away from me that it actually right. happened right uh, the thing we don't know is can we trust the source that says this happened to lincoln one source it sounds like we cannot who is the source for the other dream grant did he talk about it grant's Grant was involved in it, but it was several people at the cabinet meeting who had heard that exchange. So So like that one's corroborated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the other guy that we think is maybe trying to make a buck. Mm-hmm. His former law partner, Ward Hill Lamont. Yeah, we are we are thinking not so credible. Mm. I do think for sure, which I know, probably everybody believes this, I think that dreams can be super meaningful. I think mm-hmm. that our minds sometimes process things or mm-hmm. they can they can take us to insights or they can, through the dreams, they can point out those realizations or those worries or whatever mm-hmm. that are happening. So I do believe dreams can be very meaningful, but it's just intriguing to me to think about actually offering a premonition right a, a warning of right. something to come so anyway i just wanted to throw that at you That's thank a good you for question. playing along you're welcome <laughs> thank you for letting me tell my story all right so who should we cheers oh i guess i guess mr lincoln right yeah good guy cheers cheers this episode of scandal water was executive produced by candy thomas that's me and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the scandal water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening. Dude, if you'll behave, you can stay, okay? Let's see, let's see what you do. Come here. Here, here, baby. Come here. Here, this is what you want. Let me wipe your nose.